Today, we are in Isaiah 9 and 10 this morning. Last time we were in Isaiah, we went through the end of verse 7 and chapter 9. Today, we're going to pick up in verse 8, and we're going to go all the way uh, through the end of chapter 10. And uh, what we're going to see today is God pouring out judgment on his people and on the king of Assyria for their pride and their arrogance. Uh, And I just have to say that I am uh, looking forward to hearing from God's word on this again uh, this morning, especially on a morning where uh, I felt these things creep up in my own heart in a you know nice Sunday morning fight with the spouse. And so like, I'm, I'm eager to get into God's word and hear uh, how he wants to condemn us for the pride and arrogance that's in our heart against him and against others around us. Uh, and I think that what we'll see as we go through this is that We serve a God who is in control and who doesn't need us and who is so very far above us that there is no reason whatsoever for us to have pride or arrogance towards him or towards others. And so we're going to look at his word, try to draw that out in some key ways, uh, but I hope that even if the key way we draw out today, if it doesn't connect to you, that you would do that work for yourself uh, and have God confront you with his word Today, so let's let's go ahead and read. We're gonna read it in chunks, but we're gonna start with a pretty big chunk. We're gonna start in verse eight and go through uh, verse four of chapter ten. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's some under the chairs, and today's passage is on page five hundred and seventy-three in those. Again, we're gonna read verse eight of chapter nine through verse four of chapter ten. It says, "The Lord has sent a word against Jacob." And it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like a fire, and it consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. They devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each one devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression, to turn aside the needy from justice, and to rob the poor of my people of their right, the widows that widows may be their spoil, and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment, in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help, and where will you leave your wealth? 
nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are a God who is in control. That you reign over all your creation and over all your people. That nothing lies outside of your grasp. Thank you that in addition to being in control, you are also good. Um, Thank you that even though everyone does evil, that you sent your son to redeem your people, to redeem your creation, to, to die in our place and pay our penalty. Thank you that we get to, because of who Jesus is and what he's done, be brought into relationship with you. I pray this morning that you would send your spirit to help us understand your word together, that we wouldn't just understand what this meant when Isaiah delivered this message to your people in his day, but that we would also benefit from it ourselves, that that you, by your spirit, would convict the pride and the arrogance that creeps up in our own hearts, and that we would trust in you instead of ourselves or instead of in others or instead of something else. Help us to do that together this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So it's been a couple weeks since we've been on Isaiah. So as we kind of jump into this this morning, I want to recap a little bit where we've been. Uh, So well, two times ago when we were in Isaiah, we were in Isaiah chapter 8. And what we saw there was that there was this invasion that had been promised. God said that he's going to send the Assyrian army to, to conquer these two kings that had kind of set themselves up against uh, the people of Judah. So he's going to conquer these kings with the Assyrian army. And he said that once that happens, that Assyria is going to be kind of like a flood. And once a river rises and floods its banks, it's very, very difficult to stop. It's just going to keep spreading and keep flooding. And so God told his people through Isaiah that that flood was going to continue into the south. It was going to continue into Judah, and it was going to come up even to their necks. So he said, judgment's going to come on your enemies, but it's also going to come on you. And then in chapter 9, he, he said that there's, there's salvation that's coming to those. So there's going to be this, this future time of judgment that's coming. But then after that, there's going to be a future time of salvation. So they got bad news, and then they got good news. But all of that is something that's coming in the future. Today, what we do is we jump back into Isaiah's present day, where he says that, hey, here's this other message that he's going to deliver to the people. So the very first verse that we read was, the Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. So the first half of the verse is Isaiah's present time. He's saying God has sent this message out. He's received this word. This has already happened. It's already been done. So this, this word that he's going to deliver, he's saying it's, it's happened. It's, it's been given, but in the future, it will fall on Israel. So all the stuff that he's going to tell us in the passage today is something that's already been told to Isaiah, but... It hasn't happened yet. It's, it's going to happen. It will fall. And before we kind of move on to what, what this message is and how it's going to fall on Israel, I want to think about this verse for a little bit with you because, uh, at least to me, there's a couple 
really encouraging things that came out of it when I, when I looked at it this week. He says, the Lord has sent a word against Jacob and it will fall on Israel. So this has happened and it will happen. But what's interesting about this is that the first part of the verse, the, the, the Lord is the one who's acting, right? It says the Lord has sent a word against Jacob. So God sends out his word. He's, he's done that already. But once he does that, when we get to the second half of the verse, What's acting? What's happening? He says, it will fall on Israel. So it's like God's word takes on a life of its own in the second half of the verse. He sends it out, and then it goes out, and it does things. Now, now obviously, because it's God's word, he's still the one that's acting. He's still the one that's, that makes his word powerful. But it's encouraging to me that God, through Isaiah, describes his word in this way. Uh, because it means that... It's not all on us, right? God sends out his word, and then it happens. Like his purposes will be accomplished. His, his word will fall on Israel. And so when I think about that, I think about not what's happening in Isaiah's day, but what's happening in our day, how he sends us out. And we are a church that focuses a whole lot on the fact that God has sent us out. And that's a good thing. Right, That's something that we want to emphasize because it's something that's been missing in the church for a really long time. We thought that we could just all come here and hang out together and not do anything else. But that's not what we've been called to do. And so it's a good thing that talking about us being sent out is, is popular again in our church and in other churches. But the problem is sometimes we emphasize that so much that we forget about the fact that we haven't been sent out alone. Right? It's not just about me being sent out. It's not just about you being sent out. We're sent with one another. But more than being sent out with one another, with other people, God also sends out his word. He sends out his Holy Spirit. And so us being sent out is a really, really, really small part of the picture. Because our power pales in comparison to his word and his spirit working on his behalf to accomplish his purposes. We participate in that. He doesn't. And that's a really, really good thing for us to remember. And to, to illustrate, I think, just how, how crazy we are sometimes when we think about being sent out. Uh, there was a time in my life where I went through a significant period of growth at the end of college and then was going home to St. Louis to work, but then at the last minute kind of turned my focus elsewhere and was thinking about moving to Texas to work with the people that I worked with when I was in college. But there was one concern I had about that, one reservation in my heart about going to you know, move to Texas and do this thing. And the reservation was that, my parents would be all alone without me to help them grow while I was gone. And I just thought, how in the world will they grow in Christ if I'm not there with them? That's crazy, right? Like God doesn't need me in their life to cause them to grow, right? He doesn't need me in your life to sanctify you. He doesn't need you in my life to sanctify me. God's spirit accomplishes those things, and he uses people to do that. Don't, don't hear me saying that, like, you know, we just don't need to do anything. We just need to sit back and be lazy and let God work. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, though, is that we need to recognize that it is far more dependent upon him than it is on us. And so the second thing that is related to the first thing, he doesn't send us out alone. He sends his word out. But it means that God is working even when we aren't there. 
right? He works in people even when we don't have conversations with them. He works in people even when we don't get together with them to talk about that thing we've been wanting to talk about them about. Um, and I know that this is obvious and that we all know this, but I think that we don't believe it enough. Because the way we approach conversations with people is that if, if I can just say the right thing, or if I can just say the right thing in the right way, then they'll start believing the gospel. They'll start saying no to sin and walking in obedience. If I can just convince them and persuade them, and if I can just do things the right way, then they will think, man, I'm so glad Dan said that thing to me in that really clever way. Because since he's done that, now I'm going to live my life the way that God has called me to my whole life. Thank God for Dan Bourne. <laughs> we laugh, but how many times do we act as if that's actually true? I think that if we would hear from this verse that God has sent out his word and that his purposes will be accomplished, we would pray a lot more and meddle a lot less. We would trust that God is actually working and approach interactions with people as if God is actually working and we would look for ways to participate in how God is actually working rather than thinking that we know what's best and that the way we want him to work is the way that he should. And it's just pride and arrogance for us to think anything else. He sent out his word, it will fall on Israel. So what is this word that's going to fall on Israel? It's a word of judgment with a teeny tiny glimmer of hope that comes at the end. His word of judgment is going to fall first on Judah, on the people of God in the south. It's going to fall on Israel, the people of God in the north. And then later in our passage, he's going to get to the king of Assyria and his pride and arrogance. Um, so as we read the passage, I hope that you notice there's this kind of repeated refrain that comes up again and again. He says the same thing four times. He says, For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He says that four times. And what that tells us is that even though God is pouring out judgment in this passage, even though it progresses, it moves from stage to stage to stage to stage, once we get to the very end of this passage that we read, which is pretty bleak, and there's a lot of judgment poured out, at the very end of it, he ends with the same phrase. For all this, his anger has not turned away, his hand is stretched out still. That means there's still more judgment that's coming. So this phrase is kind of a helpful way to break down this passage. In the first section, he sends out his word, and it goes against the people of Ephraim and Samaria. The northern kingdom of Israel is getting judged in this section, and they're getting judged, judged because of their pride and arrogance. And what's happening here is they're saying, the bricks have fallen, but we'll rebuild with dressed stone. The sycamores have been cut down, but we'll put cedars in their place. What they're saying is that even though judgment's already falling, right? Buildings are being knocked down. Trees are being cut down. And they're saying, that's okay. We had bricks there. We'll put up something better. We had sycamores there. We'll plant better trees. They're, they're claiming in, in the pride and arrogance of their heart that even though judgment has fallen, it's actually going to be better in the end. They're going to put something better in their place. They're going to trust in themselves and their own power, and they're going to respond to the judgment that's falling, fall, falling by trusting in themselves. 
And God responds to this pride and arrogance by raising up their enemies. He raises up the the Syrians on one side and the Philistines on the left. And they, he says, devour Israel with an open mouth. So God is pouring out judgment on them. But even though he's poured this judgment out on them, there's still more coming. In the next section, he pours out judgment on their leaders. He says, the elder and the honored man is like the head. The prophet who teaches them like is like the tail. And he says that these things are going to be cut off from Israel. The reason why they're cut off comes in verse 16. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. God doesn't rejoice over them because everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. They are being condemned because they are evil because they are wicked. Isaiah here, the Lord through Isaiah is emphasizing the complete and total depravity of these people. Apart from God, this is who they are. Because of that, he pours out judgment on them. But at this point, his anger is not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. The next section, things progress even further. It says, wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest and they roll in a column of smoke. Then he says, through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. He says, they slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. They devour on the left, but are not satisfied. He's saying that the people don't have enough, but instead of banding together, they turn against each other. Manasseh devours Ephraim. Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. So the people in the north are at war with each other. Instead of responding to God's judgment by trusting in him, they fight amongst themselves and begin to look towards the south and fight against it as well. But for all this, his anger has not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. The next section, woe to those who decree iniquitous degrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice, to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. The people are oppressing the poor and needy in this time because what they have has been taken from them, they take from others. God responds by judging them. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? The answer is there's no one to turn to, right? They've failed to turn to God. And so judgment is all that waits for them. He says this in verse four, nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. You can choose death or captivity. But for all this, His anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. So God has poured out wave after wave after wave after wave of judgment on his people because of their failure to turn to him and instead boasting in themselves. But even at this point, even though judgment has progressed thus far, he still has not turned his anger away from his people. And part of that is because of what comes next. He's going to pour out judgment on Assyria. This is what comes in the next section. If you look down at verse 5, we're going to read this kind of next chunk where he pours out this judgment on Assyria. He says, Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him, to take spoil and seize plunder, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets." 
But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, Are not my kings all, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalnel like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Syria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples, and as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing, or opened their mouth, or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and his fruitful land the Lord will destroy, both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. In this passage, God is pouring out judgment on Assyria, and he's also reassuring his people. He's reassuring his people that even though Assyria has come down and nearly wiped them out, he is still in control. God still reigns over this, and Assyria isn't doing something all of their own accord. They're simply doing what God has told them to do. But he's going to condemn Assyria for their arrogance and their pride. Um, So in the first part of this section, what's happening here is God is just announcing the fact that Assyria is doing what he wants them to do. Assyria is accomplishing God's purposes. Um, And this is a point where you might think, right, if, if God is commanding Assyria to do these things, if he's the one that's in control, if he's the one that's causing these things to happen, then how can he turn around a couple of verses later and pour out judgment on Assyria for simply doing what he told them to do? Right? That's a good question to ask. If God told them to conquer Israel and Judah, then how can he judge them and condemn them for conquering Israel and Judah? Well, he answers that question for us in verse 7. He says, but he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations not a few. For he says, and then he goes through this thing that the king of Assyria says. So what what he's trying to draw out here is the reality that God called Assyria to do this. He used Assyria to do this, but the way that the king of Assyria accomplished God's purpose was not in a righteous way. The king of Assyria boasted to himself or in himself that he was accomplishing these things. It was his desire to take on these nations and to take them out. And so he's sinning because that's what he wants to do, not because God told him to do that. God's just using the desire that the king of Assyria already had to conquer all these nations. And once he's done doing what he wants him to do, God is going to crush Assyria and stop them from continuing to destroy and cut off nations. 
the boast here of the king of Assyria where he says, you know, he's not Kalno like Carchemish, Hamath like Arpad, Samaria like Damascus. Uh, what this is, is this is some, some good old-fashioned geographical smack talk. Uh, what, what he's doing is he's going from places that are further away to places that are near. He's saying, if I, if I conquered this place that was close to you, have I not also conquered the one that was further away? And so he moves from the close place to the far place to the close place to the far place till he finally gets right on their doorstep. Is not Samaria like Damascus? He's saying, I'm right on your doorstep and all these nations between us have been wiped out by me. He's taunting the people of Israel or the people of Judah that he's conquered everyone else but them. And the kind of the main part of this section comes in verse 12. This is what he wants to communicate. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. God, this is what hasn't happened yet, right? We went through that refrain. For all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. The thing that he's waiting to accomplish is crushing Assyria. And that's going to happen once Assyria is done doing what God wants them to do. And then God responds to the boast of the king of Assyria. He says, by his strength, he's done it. He's removed the boundaries. He has done all these things. He's emphasizing his power in response to the boast of the king of Assyria. And the the main idea is in verse 15. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? He's saying the king of Assyria is a tool. In more ways than one. (laughs) He's simply like an axe in the hand of God that God is using. And no one says, well, the axe has done all this work, right? If a lumberjack chops down a tree, it might be a nice axe. But the axe doesn't do the chopping, the lumberjack does. And there's, there's no situation in which the axe is what's exalted over the lumberjack. And... I think that this is another place where we should absolutely benefit from God's word this morning. Right? We're not the focus of what he wants to accomplish in the world. We are tools, right, that God uses to accomplish his purposes. And so it's crazy for us to boast in ourselves. It's crazy for us to think that we serve any other purpose than that. And like, don't, don't hear me saying we don't matter to God. That's, that's not what I'm saying, right? He has redeemed us in Christ, brought us into his family as sons and daughters. So we're not, we're not just tools, but we're his sons and daughters that he uses to accomplish his purpose. And that's the role we have in his plan. So it's crazy for us to boast. It's crazy for us to think that we could lift him who is not wood. Right? We're like the handle of the shovel. We don't control anything. We just do what he wants us to do. This is the role that Assyria has, but it's not the role that they want. It's not the role that they think they have. And so because of that, he is going to send judgment upon them. He's going to cause their army to waste away with sickness. He's going to chop them down like a forest. And he says that at the end, the trees will be so few that a child can write them down. A child can look at the forest and say there's seven trees there. They're going to be wiped out to the degree that there's virtually nothing left. Then we get to this section where there's a little bit of hope. And if you look down at your Bible, you'll notice that this section is different than everything else around it. Right? There's a whole bunch of poetry, and then all of a sudden we get to this section where it's just paragraph, paragraph. 
And I think what's happening here is Isaiah is trying to tell us that there's something different happening here. There's been a change of topic. And another way he tells us that is by starting verse 20 with the phrase, in that day. Whenever Isaiah does that, and we're going to see that a lot in the book of Isaiah, what he's doing is he's drawing attention to a point in history in which God is doing something significant, in which God is acting to orchestrate events for his purposes. Now, God does that all the time, right? God is always in control. He's always orchestrating events for his purposes. But when he says in that day, what he's doing is he's saying, pay attention to what God is doing in these circumstances. And the circumstances that he's orchestrating here are in order to bring his people back. He's going to redeem this remnant that are going to be saved through this judgment so that he can keep accomplishing his purposes through his people. So he says, in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will, be no, will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. So what he's saying in verse 20 is he's saying, in that day, when God's going to bring back this remnant, God's people won't trust Assyria anymore. Instead, they'll trust in the Lord. And like that's kind of confusing because we... We've just heard all this stuff about how God is going to send Assyria to pour out this judgment on them and wipe out his people. We might think, well, why in the world will they trust Assyria, right? Assyria has just been attacking them and wiping them out. Of course, they're going to trust God and not Assyria. Who would trust an army that's coming to conquer them? And we know that because we're in the future, right? We can look back and say that this is exactly what happened. But God's people, they're not in the future with us. They're in the past. So we need to step back and realize what's taking place here, where, where this falls in the book of Isaiah. Because when I started this whole thing, right, we talked about how this is a message that's been delivered in Isaiah's present day about what's going to happen in the future. Their present day is kind of where we were all the way back in chapter 7. In chapter 7, we talked about how God delivered this great promise to his people. He said, one day this virgin is going to conceive and, you know, she's going to give birth to a son. And before the son is born or before the son knows good or evil, he's going to conquer their enemies. In that passage, what's happening is King Ahaz is freaked out about these enemies. He's freaked out about Rezin and Pekah, who are the kings of Israel in Syria and how they're going to come and they're going to conquer him because they want him to team up against Assyria with them. But King Ahaz is freaked out. He's scared. He's worried because he's more afraid of Assyria than he is of Rezin and Pekah. And so he doesn't join their alliance. He doesn't want to fight against Assyria. He just wants to step back. And Isaiah, in Isaiah 7, calls Ahaz and God's people to trust in the Lord for deliverance instead of looking to Assyria to help them in their fight against Rezin and Pekah. That's, that's where we still are, right? This judgment hasn't happened yet. And so at this point, Isaiah is saying is that when this remnant, this future remnant comes back, they're going to come back at the point that God's people finally trust him instead of Assyria. Because in Isaiah's day, what they're doing is they're saying, this big nation up north is going to save everything. They're going to take out our enemies. They will be our helpers. And they do take out their enemies. But what Isaiah tells them is that they're not just going to take out your enemies. They're going to take you out too. They're going to spill over into your land and God is going to use them to judge you for your lack of faithfulness right now. But here he's saying, after that, 
after that, there will come a day when this remnant, this small number of survivors will actually trust the Lord instead of in something else or someone else. They will look to him for help instead of Assyria because they will know Assyria can't help us. They conquered us and then God conquered them. So this remnant will return. And he says, he's talking specifically about what happens in Jerusalem in verse 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with a rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed toward their destruction. So that refrain is over. Instead, he's focused on Assyria. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb and his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it up as he did in Egypt. He's saying he's going to conquer Assyria just like he took out Midian, just like he took out Egypt. He's going to deliver them just as he's delivered his people in the past. And then he says, and in that Day, his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. Which I'm sure we all understand exactly what that means, right? It's, it's because of the fat. What he's saying here is that God's going to deliver his people. He's going to deliver them as he has always done when they finally turn to him. And this image that he gives at the end is, I, I really like it. What he's describing is he's describing an ox that gets so fat that the yoke that's around its neck just breaks off. He's saying, this is what you're going to be like. You're going to be like a giant fat ox. And the king of Assyria is going to be like a yoke. And you're going to swell to such a huge capacity that he's not going to be able to control you anymore. What he's saying, I think, is that he's going to return to his people. He's going to pour out blessing on them again because they've returned to trust him. And in their uh, prosperity that the Lord will provide, Assyria won't be able to contain them anymore. God is going to strike down Assyria and he's going to return to bless his people. And they're going to get fat on that blessing. But this hasn't happened yet. Before this comes, before this remnant returns, Assyria is going to come. And that's what the passage closes with. He says, he has come to Aith. He's passed through Migron. At Michmash, he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass. At Geba, they lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galim. Give attention, O Lysha, O poor Anathoth. Madmanah is in flight. The inhabitants of Gabim flee for safety. This very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. What he's describing here is he's describing geographical locations that get closer and closer to Jerusalem. This is the Assyrian army advancing. And when they get within the sight of Jerusalem, they shake their fists. They're, they're, they're taunting. They're celebrating the fact that they are about to conquer uh, God's people. But, verse 34, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. They're going to get close to conquering God's people, but God is going to conquer them. He's going to wipe them out, Isaiah says, with terrifying power. So what's happening in this passage is God is calling his people to trust in him rather than Assyria. 
He's calling them to trust in him rather than anyone or anything else. He's saying, though, that that's not going to happen. The judgment's going to come, but even though the judgment comes, God is still going to be faithful to his people, even though they've been faithless to him. He's going to deliver this small remnant and bring them back to the land and bless them and cause them to swell with fatness so that Assyria is no longer over them, that they're no longer under that burden. And so, to me, the the picture that we get in this passage is of one where God uses an enemy to pour out judgment on his people in order to save a few. God uses Assyria to come and pour out judgment on his people, and then through this judgment, he redeems a remnant, a small number of people. And God is calling them to trust him in the midst of all these circumstances that are about to take place. Um, For us, I think the call to trust him more than anything else is even greater than what they have. Right? God uses his enemies to pour out judgment on his son in order to deliver many. That's, that's what we trust in. That's the story that he's told to us. This, this is the situation they're in, right? Where God is going to use an enemy to judge them and save some of them. But for us, God takes the judgment that we deserved. He pours it out on his son. He does it at the hands of enemies. That's, that's his people, us. Um, but through that judgment that he pours out on his son, he redeems more than a small remnant, more than just a few. Um, and then he causes us to get fat like an ox on the spiritual blessings that he's poured out on us in Christ. Right? He says that he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So much so that the yoke of sin breaks off us and we're freed from it. We're no longer under its power. We're no longer threatened by it if we've trusted in Christ. It doesn't mean that we're completely free from it and we don't do it anymore because we know the reality is that we do. That's because we give in to the pride and arrogance of our heart and think that we know what's best and that God doesn't. We decide that we don't want to be an axe in his hand. Instead, we want to make the choices. We want to do what we want to do. But it's when we submit to him and trust in him more than ourselves, more than others, more than anything else, that we serve and accomplish his purpose for us in the world. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, I would encourage you to, first of all, be thankful for the fact that you live at a time that's past this. Right? We don't need to fear God sending an enemy against us to pour out judgment on us. Because we know that he's already poured out the judgment that we deserved on his son who died in our place. And so we look to that, we trust in that, that it has been paid, that he has died for us. That he was our substitution. We don't need to fear an enemy coming to conquer us because the judgment has been paid. God has finished his work. His hand is not stretched out still against us. And I would encourage you to ask the Spirit to point out to you the ways that you boast in the face of God and trust in yourself or trust in others uh, pridefully instead of submitting to what it is that he desires for you. Pray that you would ask him to help you to know that his purposes are going to be accomplished and that you don't have to strive and labor to do that for him because he's going to do it and you get to participate in it. 
I would encourage you to, to spend time uh, confessing sin. You know, one of the things that we don't talk about a lot when we celebrate the Lord's Supper is how it's, it's supposed to be a time of confession, not just uh, for us as individuals. You know, I know that often at BC we do the very somber, like just sit in your seat and, you know, deal with your stuff. And then whenever you're ready, you can get up and, and come up here. Uh, that's a good thing. We should do that. But I would also encourage you today, uh, especially as we're talking about pride and arrogance, to think about the times in which you've sinned against other people in this room, maybe very, very recently, and that it can also be a time of confession, not just between you and God, but between you and others. Um, and that's something that we should do before we take the Lord's Supper, right? God tells us in his word that uh, Jesus talking to his disciples says that we should leave our gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to our brother. I think that that certainly connects to the idea of the Lord's Supper. It's something that we should not take before we've done things like that. Um, because he tells us that when we eat and drink of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, that we're inviting judgment on ourselves. Um, I think it's because we're making light of the sacrifice that Christ has paid on our behalf. We're making light of the forgiveness that we have uh, in not confessing our sins, not just to God, but to other people. Um, so I would encourage you to do those things, to spend time preparing your heart. If you haven't been to BC before, the way we do the Lord's Supper is the uh, cup and a cracker are laid out up here. We do the Lord's Supper every single week because we believe that we constantly need that reminder of the fact that Jesus died for us. It's something that we need to trust in again and again and again. Not, not believe again and again and again for the first time, but to keep and continuing in faith in. And so the Lord's Supper is a tangible way we can remind ourselves to do that. But you don't need to be a part of BC. You don't need to be a member of this church. We just ask that in order to participate in it, you would be someone who's trusted in Christ. Because if you haven't trusted in Christ, you don't know what you're celebrating. So it doesn't really make sense for you to participate in that. If you have questions about that, I would love to talk to you about the Lord's Supper, about why we do the Lord's Supper, about what it means to trust in Christ. And I would encourage you just about uh, anyone else in here would be willing to talk to you about those things as well. So I'm going to pray, and then there'll be a few moments. Somebody will come and play some music quietly in the background to where you can do the things that you need to do to get your heart in the right place so that you can celebrate that with us. Let's pray. God, I thank you that it is by grace through faith that we have been saved. That even uh, our salvation is a work that's dependent upon you that you accomplish on our behalf and that we get to walk in the benefits of. I pray that you would both uh, protect our hearts from boasting and also convict us when we do. That we would not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. But that instead we would look to you as the only one who has cause for boasting, as the only one who has cause for pride, and that we would magnify you instead of seeking to exalt ourselves. I pray that you would help us to trust and, and keep trusting in the work that you've accomplished on our behalf, that we would marvel at the grace that you've shown us, that your hand is no longer stretched out against us, 
but that instead you've come to our aid in Christ. That you have poured out the judgment we deserved on him in order to bring us back into relationship with you. Help us now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together to to celebrate and make use of the relationship we have with you.